Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week on the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we talk with the author. This week's guest is researcher and librarian Lisa Beer. We are discussing her new book, Fighting the Current, The Rise of American Women's Swimming, 1870 to 1926 published by McFarland in 2011. Women's swimming is one of the marquee events in NBC television's coverage of the Olympic Games. And this year's London Games brought the emergence of a new star, 17-year-old Missy Franklin, who won four gold medals and set two world records. Franklin joins a long line of female swimmers celebrated in the United States. Think of Jenny Thompson and Janet Evans, Tracy Calkins and Donna Deverona, or even Gertrude Ederle, the 1924 Olympic medalist who was the first woman to swim the English Channel. As Lisa Beer explains in her history of early women's swimming, female swimmers were celebrities in the U.S. even before Ederle made her record-breaking swim. At the turn of the century, women earned prizes and publicity in swimming races, and then, oftentimes, in traveling shows. Annette Kellerman, who emigrated from Australia to the United States in the early 1900s, offers an example. She swam in races, attempted a crossing of the channel, performed on stage shows, and finished her career in early motion pictures. As an entertainer and an athlete, Kellerman constantly advocated for the health benefits of swimming, as well as for women's rights. In our interview, Lisa discusses Kellerman and some of the other pioneers who pushed for women to be able to enter the water and to wear clothes that didn't cause them to drown. After watching the spectacle of contemporary swimming with the promise of huge paydays for some medalists, it is worth taking a look at how the sport began for women, little more than a century ago. I think that you'll enjoy my interview with Lisa Beer about her book. Here it is. My guest this week on New Books and Sports is Lisa Beer. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. So I'll ask first for you to say a few words of of introduction and... uh, I'll ask, uh, since you've written a book about swimming, were you yourself a a swimmer? I actually wasn't, and um, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. Um, I never swam competitively. I actually didn't do much of anything athletically, so I'm really coming at this book from from a non-athletic perspective. Um, But one of the things I wrote about in the book was access to swimming pools and access to clean water, And I did have that. Um, I grew up across the street from our town swimming pool, which was a beautiful Olympic-sized pool, and I had swimming lessons, and I just never really got the hang of swimming. I can swim, but I can't swim quickly, and I look terrible when I'm doing it. Um, My dad got very into swimming. My sister got very into swimming. So I did think about that as I was writing. You know, why did certain members of the family get very involved in swimming. My sister ended up working as a lifeguard, and to this day, my sister and my dad swim daily, if they can. 
um, and I just never took to it. So I have thought that someone who was a swimmer or is a swimmer would have written a really different book from what I wrote. Um, I think especially in the beginning where I'm talking about water quality around New York City, um, my main thought was what would it, what would compel somebody to want to get in that filthy water? Um, so that's where I was coming from, sort of a, a sense of amazement rather than relating to these early swimmers. Well, that's surprising to me that you're you're not a swimmer or not, you haven't been a competitive swimmer. In that, uh, uh, in reading various books for for the podcast, uh, I typically get a sense in reading it that that this person has a familiarity with the sport that comes from having played it. And and as I read the book, I I presumed you were a swimmer because it does have a uh, seemingly an intimate knowledge of the sport. I'm very glad to hear that, but I actually don't. And what I was looking for as as I was writing was, you know, a sense of what made these women want to swim um, against, you know, in the face of so many barriers, and um, how did they go about doing it, and what did it bring to their lives, um, and how did it expand their lives. So that's what I was looking for. Um, and I think you can, like, I don't have a, a an emphasis on, times or record set or that kind of thing. So I think a, a real swimmer may have focused more on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with that that larger point. What did you find that, uh, given all of the obstacles that faced women who wanted to swim in the 19th century and early 20th century, what, what drove them to get past those obstacles and get in the water? I think women were... Um, desperate for recreational opportunities, opportunities to exercise, opportunities to have fun. And the earliest swimming pools were these um, these floating pools that would be anchored to the ends of piers or docks. And they were intended for hygiene. Um, New York City, in, um, the first one was 1870, New York City, um, and they were intended as bathhouses. So there'd be a separate day for men, separate day for women. So women would have this space where it's just women and girls. Um, supposedly, they're supposed to be going in there and bathing and getting clean, even though the water wasn't particularly clean. And the earliest newspaper articles, it's, um, you know, there's one quote where the reporter says, you know, you can hear people shrieking and laughing. They're having so much fun. So I think this was a really fun, safe space. And I don't think women had any other place where they could jump around and scream and splash water at each other or just sort of float there and relax. So so it's almost instantly that these pools go from um, places for hygiene to places for fun. I was trying to get a mental picture of how these these floating free baths work. So they were, so what was it like a, a a tub that was put into the bay or something, and then then connected to the pier, or was it on the pier? How did they work exactly? They were kind of like barges. That I guess the the part that's underwater is actually made of slats. So Mm -hmm. the river water can flow right through it. Oh, I see. Okay. But, um, you know, big pieces of garbage couldn't really come in. Mm -hmm. And they were 
they were built up one or two stories so that um, there was sort of a, they were surrounded by the changing rooms. So people couldn't see in. So you couldn't have peeping toms watching the women swim or anything like that. Um, so Although it, there it, were plenty of peeping toms. Oh, sure. I think there always will be peeping toms. <laughs> um, but, you know, supposedly this, this was a, a safe private place for women. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's. Uh, uh, this is something you've already mentioned in terms of the the look the search for for clean water, and this is where you begin the book with really a, a stomach churning chapter about the <laughs> the primeval sludge of early swimming. So, which is something you you wouldn't think about is just the the basic need for clean water to have to have swimming. So, could you tell us about that about the conditions that nineteenth century swimmers faced? Sure. Um... In 1840, New York City was able to start piping in clean water supplies from the the Croton Aqueduct um, from upstate New York. Um, But that didn't do anything about getting rid of dirty water uh, or garbage, really. So New York City's earliest means of getting rid of trash and garbage, and this is things, this is dead animals that drop dead, um, remnants of butchered animals, um, you know, rags, rotten fruits and vegetables. The way they get rid of these, they'd put them all on these giant garbage barges and kind of, they were supposed to take them out out of, you know, the inner New York City harbor, but they didn't usually do that. So they would take them out, you know, a mile or two, dump them, and everything would wash right back in. So even at the the early beach resorts out in Brooklyn and the Jersey Shore, um, these things are washing right back up. So right around Manhattan, you have, you know, the trash from the city, and even further out, it's it's all just washing back in. And some of these descriptions, um, I still get grossed out when I reread the book, (laughs) because it's, you know, there's cats, dogs parts of sheep um, and, and people talk about you know how upsetting it is you go to the shore and you're waiting and suddenly a, there's a dead cat bumping up against you or a bottle hits you in the head and um, it was just awful yet people did go to the beach you have in in the the first chapter you have a picture of, of Rockaway Beach and it's crowded with with swimmers yes and that's the picture with the ropes. Um, most people did not actually know how to swim, even when they did go to the beach. So there were these lines that were strung out from the beach into the water. So um, you could sort of cling to these ropes, creep out into the surf, um, and actually get wet. Um, and that's bathing, not actually swimming. Mm-hmm. So, and very few people did learn to swim at the beach. And this is something you talk about as well in the in the early part of the book that whether at the beach or these these floating free baths, uh, there are very few people, women or men, who knew how to swim. So when did when did people begin to learn how to swim? Well, the free floating baths, which are run by the city, um, they start offering swimming lessons, and this is something that's really difficult to do because people could only go into the baths in these twenty minute shifts. So you would have, and there's a photo in the book of um, women and kid, little girls like lined up 
waiting to go into the bath. Um, so they would let in a set number of, uh, of swimmers. Um, they would change into their approved bathing suit, which in the, in the free baths was a lot more, you could be a lot more casual in the free baths. You would wear maybe a canvas suit, nothing fancy, nothing like what you had to wear at the beach. Um, so they but one, one detail you talk about is that you had to, as a woman, you had to hold up what you were going to wear for mm-hmm. approval, correct? Yep, for approval from the, the matrons or the attendants. So they'd go in, they'd change, everyone's in the pool. And there's, I actually found a, um, a video on the Library of Congress website from, I think, 1908, this movie. And it's just, it's pandemonium. It's just jumping in the waters, you know heaving and it's very chaotic so the women who ran the baths on the women's days they had to um keep everybody moving maintain these 20 minute shifts in the water um keep keep kids from you know under control keep an eye on everybody's water safety and then try to teach swimming in the middle of all this so they would attempt to teach swimming when they could but it was it was hard to do, and the city actually um, they eventually start sponsoring races and swimming contests. So they are really trying to encourage people to learn how to swim. But it's not easy to do under those conditions. Why were they trying to encourage people to learn how to swim? I think they realized that it was a safety issue, and I think one of the one of the big problems is. Um, well, men actually, men and boys actually would jump in the water whenever they felt like it, and they'll be diving off docks on off the edge of Manhattan. Um, little boys would be going in with no clothes on. Um, but dead cats, dead dogs, it doesn't matter, we'll swim It's out. awful. It's gross. <laughs> I don't think little boys really cared um, so much, but but there are these reports of children dying constantly and then someone goes in to rescue them and that fellow dies and um the city did realize oh and you know if a woman fell in the water wearing regular clothes you know the clothes get waterlogged you you know all these long skirts and hose and shoes and big sleeves if that kind of dress got got wet and you didn't know how to swim you would be just done for so it was an awareness of this, that the, the city had, that it really was important that people start learning how to swim properly. Um, and I think there are these, these individuals that make it a priority. Um, one of the women that I write about is Kate Bennett, and she's sort of a one-woman force for swimming education in the city um, in the 1870s, 80s, and into the 90s. Um, she teaches at the public baths, but then she also opens her own private bath for wealthier customers. And she really makes swimming somewhat fashionable. She's a teacher, but she also does these exhibitions. So um, she'll have her students put on performances and races. And this um, it's really funny. It's almost like synchronized swimming crossed with feeder crossed with a swim meet. So they're really, they're really these funny descriptions, but this goes a long way to, to making swimming, um, giving girls and women the idea that you can swim. It's not going to make you masculine. These women that are doing it are very attractive. Um, and 
she eventually starts having these um, these outdoor marathon races in the Hudson River and off of Brooklyn. So these races, she would advertise them the week before, and 10,000 people would come out to see these women race. So she's she's like the big mover and shaker for women swimming. I was going to ask, what did the... Because already in the 1870s and 80s, swimming races... Uh, for both men and women, become popular spectator events. So, so are they all typically long distance races, or, or what did they look like? No, some of them were sprints. Um, some of them are just a hundred yards out into the Hudson River and back. Um, and then some of them, I don't know how familiar you are with New York City, but if you know where the Verrazano Bridge is between Brooklyn and Staten Island, it's a huge bridge. They were racing. Across that, I, I am familiar with New York City, and that uh, my eyes popped at this idea of having a swimming race across the Narrows. That was yeah, that was startling. Twelve-year-old girls, yes, sometimes. yes, twelve and thirteen-year-old girls. So um, this is just amazing. And I, there's actually some organizations that that are swimming in New York City today, and uh, they recreate a few of these races. They recreate um, Gertrude Ederle's swim from. Um, the bottom of Manhattan to Sandy Hook, New Jersey. Another organization does um, another one uh, from Manhattan to, I think it's Coney Island. So they're still doing that today. And it's it's just so amazing to me that um, in the 1870s, these women were doing this. So who were these women? What did the, uh, uh, what background did uh, these early racers come from? I think they came from working class and middle class. Um, there's a lot of accounts of the, the floating baths, the first free-floating baths, about who was swimming in the different baths. And it's a lot of factory girls. And then, you know, women of who did not work, they would come there to swim too. Um, but the, the racers that... I think we're more middle class to upper middle class. These are the people that um, that do have the opportunity to go further out to the, the resorts on um, Long Island and New Jersey. And some of these women actually come out of the life-saving movement as well. So um, a lot of those are, um, they're based at resorts. They're based in neighborhoods around Manhattan. Um, there was a sort of neighborhood movement to establish safe you know, early lifeguards at places where they felt that the police were not doing anything to keep kids safe. Mm -hmm. So they would form these squads. um, And some of them, a few of them actually allowed women to be full members. And more common, they had sort of auxiliary women's units. So they sponsor these things called water carnivals, where they're putting on um, exhibitions of swimming strokes, exhibitions of diving, um, showing people uh, rescue techniques, um, showing early uh, resuscitation techniques. And some of these are really interesting. I've seen photos of them. You know, you pull the drowning person on top of a barrel and punch their chest and that sort of thing. Um, so, and, and the goal was to show people that swimming is enjoyable, that women can swim, women should swim. Um, and that's where a lot of the marathon racers come from. 
And this is something I was going to ask about this uh, following up with, with Kate Bennett. Uh, this connection of water safety and lifeguards with swimming and diving as sport and entertainment, this was the case throughout the, the late 19th and into the early 20th century, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this public performance aspect of it is really important because that's that's the educational part of it, and that was really important to um, to convince women that, you could go in the water, you could get your hair wet, you could, you know, wear slightly less clothing than you were used to. Or, um, And they also did a lot, speaking of clothing, for um, bathing suit reform. And, you know, you had sort of the the public view that you should not go in the water with without, um, you know, your arms covered. You needed three-quarter length sleeves. You needed a you know, a wool dress, you needed the petticoat, you needed the hose, shoes. Um, and a lot of cases, corsets were actually supposed to be a part of um, swimwear. And a lot of the women in these these um, early life-saving organizations were very, very um, adamant that this was dangerous. This was a big part of, of um, the danger of swimming was that you shouldn't have to wear things that actually weighed you down in the water. And one of that's uh, Adeline Trapp is one of the big movers for, for that, for bathing suit reform. And this was something I want to ask you about, Lisa, is, is swimwear. And it's something you discuss throughout the book. And as you point out, it's, it's an important part of the, uh, the history of women swimming, of what they were allowed to wear and the changes that they were then able to make in terms of uh, of swimwear. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's sort of um, two parallel, you know, swimwear trends going on. There's There's what the average woman could wear to the beach. And men, too. You know, men were supposed to cover their chests. Um, there were reports of men being hauled in for not wearing enough clothes at the beach. Um but for women, um, generally, you, if, if you went out in public, if you went to the beach, you sort of had to follow these, you know, societal rules about what you could wear and what you could show. Um, for women who were in the private baths, they had a lot more, um, a lot more leeway about what they could wear. So, you know, you know, if you didn't think there was a man around, if it's just women in the pool, just female teachers you could wear um, a lot less. Um, and then the racers are sort of a different category entirely because they start rebelling and they decide, no, we're not going to do that. So there are some early um, races where women would be cloaked right up until, or you know, they'd be wearing their regular suit and then right before they jumped in the water, they'd take off the skirt. So they're wearing sort of shorts and the the top and their arms aren't showing or they would they would go in a big towel or blanket and right before the start of the race and there's a photo of this in the book i think they're at the starting line of this race and there are men standing behind them with with um blankets kind of covering them and they're the race is like clearly two seconds away from starting and they're still kind of being concealed by the men but 
they're getting ready to swim in suits that they would not have been able to wear to the beach or not for very long. They would have, you know, been told to leave. So there's this sort of acceptance that women who race are not, they, you know, they're not going to wear the suits that they're expected to wear. Mm-hmm. So around what time does, uh, do the women's suits begin to look more or less like, like the suits you see today? One, one piece suits that you see today. I would say 1905 for the for the racers. Mm-hmm. Well into the 1920s, you have um, the much more restrictive public suits. Um, but for the racers, you see that really changing around 19, 1905. And a lot of that has to do with Annette Kellerman, who was the um, the Australian swimmer who made a name for herself by creating a new type of suit. And I don't think she was the first to wear this kind of suit, but she really became famous for it. And it was more like a leotard than the sort of dress that you see previous swimmers wearing. It's very form-fitting, very close cut. Um, I'm not positive, but I I assume it was stretchy. So she could really swim in this. Um, And she goes on to this great career in movies but she remains a diehard um, proponent of swimming for women, swimming for health, um, swimming for safety. She's very interesting. Um, Annette Kellerman was so savvy and so whip smart about what she wanted to do. And um, she's really a great businesswoman. Um, She was producing her own movies. Um, She's a, pioneer in Hollywood as much as she is in the swimming world. Um, but she, anyway, her bathing suit goes a long way to sort of changing, to, to making swimming glamorous, for one thing, um, and kind of knocking off a lot of the, the restrictions in the public view about um, what women should or shouldn't be wearing. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to ask about Kellerman because she's kind of, uh, she's a remarkable figure, uh, in your book, but she's also something of a representative figure in that uh, many of the women you talk about were uh, competitive swimmers or divers. They were advocates for swimming and for water safety, and they were also entertainers. Yes. Yep. And that's that's very common up until 1915 when the Amateur Athletic Union finally accepts women swimming as a sport that they're going to sanction. Um, there's this sort of, there are the vaudeville swimmers, um, these performance swimmers, and this is not just, you know, the, the performances going on at the swimming schools or the life-saving meets. These are, this is vaudeville and variety. These swimmers would tour, and some of them were great swimmers. Um, Rose Pittenoff from Boston, she's this early marathon swimmer. She was a professional though she she toured on the stage she would do they'd have these portable swimming pools and they'd set them up at theaters and you know women would swim in them or dive do these underwater tricks um so even before women were accepted into the amateur athletic union some of them were were kind of you can see they're planning ahead that they're waiting for the opportunity to be sanctioned amateur swimmers. So there are women that don't want to 
they don't want to cross that line. They don't want to be professionals because once you did any swimming for money, you were never allowed to be an amateur again. Um, so there's women who who are are setting that you know that line for themselves that they they want to be pure amateurs. They don't want to do anything that could be considered professionals. And then there's women that are kind of doing both for a while. Um, and then once once they're accepted into the amateur athletic union, they go back and they, they tell all the women who, who were swimming um, in vaudeville, you know, your amateur days are over. You're not going to be swimming for the AAU at all. And so what was the... What were the reasons for the AAU's resistance to women swimmers? Was it because of their the hint of professionalism or because they were women? Or I, my, I argue that it was just this one man, James E. Sullivan, who had this iron grip on amateur athletics from, I don't know, I think 19, early 1900s up until the second he died in 1914. He really... Um, kind of invents amateur athletics and turns it into what it is today. He, I mean, it was all pretty disorganized before he arrives on the scene, and he is very bureaucratic, very, very obsessed with rules, writing rules, um, making sure that his rules are adhered to. Um, he absolutely wants the professionals to be um, removed from amateur athletics. And he does things, he's um, Jim Thorpe, he wins his Olympics at the 1912, okay, Um, and then they find out a year or so later that he had played on a baseball team one summer, and it's Sullivan that goes to the trouble of having this American athlete's medals removed, Um, and that's how incensed he was that a rule had been broken under his watch. so it, he really doesn't want women involved in any amateur sports. He doesn't, and it wasn't just swimming. He didn't want women involved at all. Um, so, and he's such a forceful man that until he dies, like his 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 word is is law, basically. So in 1914, they were planning for the 1916 Olympics which were supposed to be in Berlin, but they eventually got canceled because of World War I. Um, so even at that, you know, they're in Europe, they're planning the 1916 games. Um, all but four countries want to include women swimming. Um, and he's adamant that he's not going to allow women swimming. Um, so it's even when the other countries are letting it happen and it really was more up to the host city at that point to decide anyway he's he's absolutely opposed and then he dies in the fall of 1914 and it's almost immediate that the aau turns around and women's swimming is sanctioned under the aau sullivan is something of a villain of your book i would say he is um i mean he did great things for sports for boys certainly, um, and amateur sports um, as a whole. But he didn't like women. And I, I didn't understand this because he lived in New York and he saw everything that these women, these swimmers were doing. You know, he knew all about it. 
he wasn't on the other side of the country with no idea of, you know, the 24-mile swims they were doing. I mean, he knew, and he just didn't want it to happen. And I, I still don't really understand it. So you'd mentioned that. So Sullivan was from New York. He would have been aware of uh, these swimming races, these marathon swims that women were, were doing in. And to pick up on that, um, much of the book focuses on swimming in, in the Northeast and in particular in the New York area. Have you found were there other developing swimming cultures around the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century? Well, I have to say the focus on New York City um, started out because this was originally going to be a book about Gertrude Ederly, um, who I, you know, I started out writing about her because, you know, when I realized no one had ever written a book about her, I thought, you know, I'm a genius for thinking of writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> and then it took me so long to write it that three other books came out about her. There were other then, geniuses, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, and I still think there should be a movie about her. Yes, but, I agree. Uh, I agree. We've had. How is that possible? I don't know. We've had. We've had. Uh, uh, one of the geniuses who's written about Gertrude Adderley has been. Uh, on the podcast before, and I thought the same thing in reading about her. This is just such an extraordinary life. But uh, and anyway. it's a great story. It's, it would be perfect for a movie. But um, so three other books came out. So I thought, and I was nowhere even you know halfway done by the time these other three came out. So um, I thought I'm I'm going to kind of salvage the book by looking at earlier swimmers. Um, and once I really started delving into that, I couldn't. I was really amazed that, you know, I would find something from the 1890s and I would think, okay, that must be the earliest, um, you know, women's swimming race. And then I'd find one from the 1880s and then I was finding them in the 1870s. So um, I was astonished at how far back I was able to go. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if there were earlier ones and I just didn't find them. So she, Gertrude Ederly was from New York City and her parents were immigrants from Germany. Her dad was had a butcher shop. Um, that's how it ended up starting out, focusing on New York City. And, of course, a lot of, um, you know, I live close to New York City. I live in Connecticut. So I did a lot of my research at the New York Public Library, you know, using microfilm. So that's kind of how the New York City focus happened. But it really was um, the center of swimming in the United States. Um, most of the women who ended up going to the 1920 Olympics were from New York City. There were some from Chicago. Um, Philadelphia had a big swimming scene. California did as well, um, although I don't know much about California. Oh, and Hawaii did too. And the early years of um, the earliest, you know, when women finally start swimming in the AAU, there are these matches and these women start swimming to – or traveling for matches to, you know, San Francisco and Hawaii and um, Los Angeles. So, so there, I mean, there were, swimming was going on in these other places, um, but I do think New York City was the earliest and um, the best. So let me ask about uh, uh, swimming in other countries, because you do write about this a bit in, in your book, the, the larger global context of, of women's swimming. So how did the, the development of women's swimming in the United States compare to other countries? 
Well, I think um, I think England probably had the most organized swimming programs for women, but you see that that's more upper middle class and upper class women. Um, they have pools, much better pools, much earlier than the United States do does. Um, and Australia has a, a pretty well developed um, women's swimming by the 1900s, and they were they were um, they were actually looking for international competition before we were. Um, Australia sent two women to the 1912 Olympics. And it, although they didn't really send them, uh, Australia said, you're welcome to go if you want to pay your own way. So um, they did. They went. They did very well. Um, so England had a team at the 1912 Olympics as well. But the U.S. doesn't really start participating in international competition until, I think, 1917. Um, the Australians come and visit, and they do sort of a demonstration tour so that's that's kind of the beginning of it. And then there's sort of a um, several of the girls from the New York Women's Swimming Association go to London, but the AAU didn't approve of it, so it kind of turns into this fight in the newspapers. And eventually um, they, did, they got to London, they got to England, they didn't do any competition there um, because they were afraid they would be banned from the AAU. Um, so 1920 really is the first time that, you know, they meet on the international stage. So let me ask about that, the uh, um, 1920 Olympics in Antwerp, Belgium. Uh, who were the, the first uh, Olympic women swimmers for the United States? Uh, most of them were from the New York Women's Swimming Association, the youngest two were Eileen Riggin and Helen Wainwright. They were only 14. Um, very, very young, like actually little girls. Um, and then there were some older girls or women, um, Ethelda Blybtree, I hope I'm saying that right, um, Helen Meany, um, Sybil Bauer, who was from Illinois, um, Charlotte Boyle, who's from New York City area. Um, I actually almost focused more on the the travel and the uh, what the Olympics were like at that game because they, they're just so different. You know, they have to take a freighter over to, um, to Belgium that had been most recently used for transporting um, deceased soldiers back from Europe. Um, so the athletes say they can smell the formaldehyde and it's just horrible and there's almost a you know, a, a rebellion on the boat because um, it's just so um, unpleasant to be on it. Um, although, you know, in oral histories from some of the younger girls, they, you know, they say, oh, we didn't care. It was just a huge adventure. Um, but they had, the boat is set up with, and I think it takes them 13 days to get from the U.S. to Europe. And, you know, the boat is set up. They have a sort of a portable swimming pool that they would get in and they'd tie a rope around their waist and then they'd sort of swim in place. And of course that's, you know, terrible for training. Um, when you think about the training facilities that our athletes have now, um, so they, they do calisthenics on the deck and, um, but they're all pretty much desperate for real exercise by the time they get off the boat. So they do very well in that Olympics. Um, and it sort of 
they come back, the public loves them, and the United States Olympic Committee, you know, has to admit that women are a big part of, of their ability to rack up medals on the medals table. Um, and so at that point, there's really no turning back for women because the public knows they're an important part of the team and the USOC knows. And were women featured uh, in, the, in the newspaper coverage? of yes. uh, So these women swimmers were featured in the coverage then as well? They were. They absolutely were. Um, and I, I think, you know, they stood out as personalities a little bit more than the men. So, you know, the same way today that you see this sort of personality-driven coverage, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. see that for the women and the girls, um, you know, the 14-year-olds. That's they're very appealing to newspaper readers to read about what these girls are doing. So you mentioned earlier, Lisa, that your your project began as a uh, biography of Gertrude Ederle and, and uh, her swim across the English Channel in 1926, uh, but that you were beaten to that topic by by other authors in in viewing, but in like looking every author. But but you did write about her, and so in viewing Ederle in this larger context of of swimming in the United States and internationally. What uh, what different perspective did you gain of her than you would have, say, if you had written a, uh, a biography just focusing on her and her swim? Well, you know, we think of her as a pioneer. We think she was, I mean, and she was. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel. But once I started reading about the earlier swimmers, um, the early individuals like Kate Bennett, the early organizations like the... Um, National Women's Life-Saving League and the New York Women's Swimming Association, um, you can see direct links between these organizations, these people, their work, everything that made it possible for Gertrude Ederle to be where she was at the right time. Um, and she is, she's a spectacular athlete, and she's really interesting because she's sort of blasé about it, And I don't think she trained very much. I think she was just one of these natural, amazing athletes. Um, But she would not have been able to swim the channel or swim at all, really, if it weren't for the New York Women's Swimming Association. Um, And they they are directly connected to the National Women's Lifesaving League, and that traces back to the early women swimmers who were, you know, auxiliaries of the life-saving units and we can trace that back to Kate Bennett. So you see this like series of women who made change happen, who made it possible for, you know, Gertrude to feel comfortable enough to, you know, make a handmade bikini talk to swim the channel. And, you know, so when you contrast it to 60 years earlier, she would have, or whoever was trying to swim the channel back then would have been doing it in some ridiculous dress so I, I really liked seeing um, how individual action really led to this huge change for women over the course of 50 years and you used the word earlier uh, pioneer and mm-hmm. and you write at the end of the book that when looking at at the history of sport women's sports in the late 19th, early 20th century, it's it's the female swimmers who are the ultimate pioneers, you say. Why do, why do you say that? Why do you see uh, women swimmers as uh, taking a leading role? 
partly because they were the first to go to the Olympics. And I think what they're doing is so extreme, um, you know, between it's dangerous, it's dirty, they wear less clothes than anyone is allowed to wear in public. Um, at every point, they're kind of pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable, um, but they do it. So we're almost out of time, Lisa, and uh, I want to ask you, one thing that, that struck me in, in the book uh, were the photographs that you included. And uh, as, as a historian, I find typically that uh, in looking at photographs of people from the 19th century or the early 20th century, the, I find that the people, well, look different. They look, uh, you know, they're typically stiff and unsmiling and posed. They just don't look like like we look in photographs. But with the, the photographs you have in the book of people at the beach, people in their swimsuits, you see people smiling, laughing, people climbing on each other. And uh, so it was quite striking. Where did you find these, these photographs? Is this common for, for beach scenes from the 19th century? It actually is. There's a lot of this intimacy at the beach. Um, people kind of leaning on each other and hugging each other. And I'm not sure that there were a lot of places where you were allowed to do that. Um, but I did actually seek out photos like that. I wanted people that looked like us. Um, I wanted people that were having fun and moving. Um, and a lot of there's a lot of um, you know bathing beauty type photos mm -hmm. where you'll have a woman uh, posed on a rock wearing a swimsuit that looks like you couldn't even get it wet. Um, and I didn't want those. I wanted ones that showed, you know, women who'd just gotten out of the water and they're covered with sand and their hair's messed up. And um, so I looked for that. And I looked for photos that include or images that included motion. And the cover photo is one of my favorites. It's um, I don't know who those people are or where they're from, but I love the movement in mm -hmm. the photo. Mm -hmm. um, and they're having fun, and they're being encouraged to jump in the water. And um, so, yeah, I had a I had a great time with the photos, looking for the photos, finding the photos. Um, that was one of my favorite parts about working on this book. Well, let me ask you because uh, so you're a librarian, you work around books all the time. Uh, how different was it for you in in writing your first book to work? on the, the other side of the process, the writing and the researching and the, and the publishing? That was brutal. Um, the research was fantastic. I could do research for the rest of my life. Um, I can look at microfilm. I can read old advertisements. Um, I just love the research. Putting it together in a book was, was pretty, um, took me forever, really and, you know, restructuring it. Um, but it really made me look at libraries differently. Um, you know, I have a lot more compassion for people who have library phobia or don't like libraries. You know, what part of my job is to teach our students how to use the library. And having to go to so many different libraries kind of lets me see our library through their eyes now. So that's been really great. Um, Really, you know, being forced to use libraries like an outsider, I think it's made me, you know, a better teacher, at least. 
So you said that you love researching. Do you have another research project that you're working on then? No, um, and I think I just have to wait for the next thing to to kind of bite me, but it hasn't happened yet. You've been listening to an interview with Lisa Beer about her book, Fighting the Current, The Rise of American Women's Swimming, 1870 to 1926, published in 2011 by McFarland. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects such as philosophy, politics, and science. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find daily links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.